Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Hain Ong Tet, an online activist from Myanmar. Hain returned to Myanmar in 2019 after completing his undergraduate studies in the UK. Having first taken a job teaching ethnic minorities politics, law and English, he then moved into the youth sector working with young people who were caught up in the juvenile system. Following the coup in February this year, he joined the civil disobedience movement. Witnessing firsthand the devastating impact this was having on people all across Myanmar, he set up a mutual aid fundraiser called On the Ground to help raise money for civil servant workers. It's been 9 months since the coup. and he has now returned to the UK to commence his postgraduate studies. Here he talks about the devastating effects of the coup as well as life under military rule. He also explores some of the wider issues that the coup has brought to the forefront in Myanmar, such as LGBTQ+ rights and the role of Buddhist nationalism. Let's start the conversation. So thanks so much Hain for joining us and we're really excited to talk to you and hear your story. So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about your life and who you are and and maybe your experiences up and until the coup really. Okay, so my name's Hain. I'm 23. I was a student in the UK and then I graduated in 2019. And after that, I was working at the school called Peace Law Academy, which teach um, ethnic minorities, law, politics and English. Most of them are lawyers, but educational institutions here are not very competent so they have to go to a school outside of school to like actually learn so it was funded by Sweden Swedish government as well so we were working with ethnic minorities and then um, i left that job at like september last year and then after that i was working with juvenile at a mentally resource center so a lot of kids that get caught up with the juvenile system so i work with them It was quite interesting work. Very draining. I'm not going to completely lie. <laughs> But um overall it was quite interesting work. And yeah, so um ever since the coup happened, I've been jobless. So happy. <laughs> since February, I've been jobless. So I've changed my work into online activism. I run a mutual aid fundraiser called On the Ground and we're able to raise around 60k for um civil servants and also we raise money for um Ima, which is a village that was burned down by the military, and my friend Sandy has been raising money for um COVID relief as well. So I guess it's part of the mutual aid fundraiser, but she did it alone on her private Instagram. And the platform I've been using mostly for that is Instagram. So I feel like the military isn't that suspicious of that app. <laughs> In terms then, Hain, of your work, you don't have work because of the coup because your work stopped, or because you stopped working? Like, did you participate in CDM? It's because um it was a local resource center, so it was government work. Like we weren't really working that much with the government, like that crazily much. But like I feel like I should have gone on strike, so I went on strike. So like there are some people still working because there are some like cases that are left. But overall, that's why I stopped working to so, like protest. And after a while, like I don't even think that the same job I was working is going to be still open because like the legal justice system now is like even worse than Burma with the military. And what was your initial thoughts on joining CDM? Did you think like was it because you didn't want to work for the military? Was it just to show your support to to the people? What was the what was your thinking in in making that kind of decision? 
to rewind, I woke up at like 8 a.m. and my mom was like, oh, the military took over. And like, I felt like it was 1962 again. I feel like we couldn't do anything. Everything's just going to go back to normal. And so like a few days later, like the doctors started like participating in like civil disobedience movement. And I feel like, okay, maybe I should do that as well. It's not just to like support like my fellow workmates and my fellow colleagues, but it's also to like basically state that I cannot work under this government. I know the NLD government wasn't perfect, but it was still moving forward. So yeah, that was my um, code. And civil disobedience for me has been not difficult because I come from a well-off family, but for my colleagues, it has been much more difficult. They're struggling to literally feed their families, but they're still doing it, which I am in awe. Yeah, there's obviously only so long that, that people can do that and well, and survive, really. So it's amazing how men had that conviction to be able to make that sacrifice. An example would be like the monastery I go to. Now there's like two or three doctors living there. They don't have a home anymore because they were living in dorms that were provided for them. And now they don't have a source of income. They've been staying at the monastery for like months. It must have been so like disheartening as well to not, you know, continue the work that you love as well for them. I think that's something that in the Western world maybe is not really as understood that in Myanmar, when you work for the government, that actually provides you with housing as well. So most people, their homes are attached to their jobs. So when you stop working, you literally have no home. And we saw a lot of people kicked out of their homes by the military. So it's not just no food. You literally have no roof over your head. One of the civil servants that I supported was in Nichina. She's Chin. She was a kitchen nurse. And like, the funds that I sent were just not enough because not only is she struggling to like meet the demands of like her family, you know, her husband and everything, but also like she has to move out as well. And there are certain cases like, for example, she wasn't supported by her family because she married someone that they don't approve of. You know, there are like exceptional circumstances and like they're still on strike. Like they're continuing this, but they're struggling really hard because it's a lot of things at once. It's family, feeding the families. And I try to divert how much funds I give for example, if it's two people, like, you know, one person's on strike and maybe her husband or his wife, I don't give as much. But when it's a bigger family, I try to give more. That's how, like, I divert um, my funds as well. My friend was actually saying the food prices are going up so much. And she said she's really noticed a difference in terms of survival because of not only limited work, but escalating food prices. Yeah. Everything is on a rise in there. And I don't want to, this is like changing the topic a little bit, but there are really privileged Yangon elites doing things that I'm just in shock of. Like, for example, when I talk to like civil servants on strike, they're struggling really difficult. And I know this girl from like a friend friend and she picked 18 cakes, no, 23 cakes for her friend's 23rd birthday. And I was just thinking like, come on, <laughs> get a grip on reality, you know? I think it's like some people are still quite far removed from this. They're not necessarily pro- Junta, they're not necessarily pro-Tamador, but their lives haven't changed in that they're still living in relative normality. And I just wonder how long that's going to continue whilst there's still this resistance going on. I mean, there's surely got to be a point where it will affect everyone. I think um, it's a lot of things as well. I think if you're a Bama who lives in an urban area up to now, like I know that Yangon is facing violence, but it's not on the same scale as like, for example, like in Eugenia, like, you know, uh, Molina in one state. So like, I think you don't even have to be privileged to be disconnected. You can be like, you cannot experience like physical violence if you're living in the city or if you're from a certain ethnic group. So I think like answering your question, I do think that when like violence start reaching cities really hard, maybe that's when people will be like snapping, you know, like, oh shit, this is, this is truly serious, you know? 
stuff. Yeah. I was also amazed, like initially, when my friends in Yangon first heard explosions and first it was on their street, like the terror and how terrifying that was. And now it almost seems like it's kind of more normalised. It's not as much of a shock if there is an explosion. And I saw these two ununiformed military officers, but they were literally just in their, you know, everyday lounges and they had massive guns just like walking down the street and like stopping cars. And it's just so far removed from Yangon that we experienced when we were living there. It's quite interesting because um, at first it was really quite scary, but after a while, like things get normalized. I hear gunshots like every week when I was in Mandalay and I don't even react anymore because it's like they're shooting up the sky and I just knew it or doing fireworks on purpose like scare it's just a scare tactic i feel like in cities where else in like rural areas it's not a scare tactic they're actually going for it yeah so like what you said is really quite interesting it's getting normalized isn't it the violence hey mandalay has been like a, a real hot spot for violence and protests and even even now every day we see you know huge gatherings in mandalay so what was it like in those early stages in, in mandalay you were there did you join the protests I did. It was absolutely fine at once because, you know, when the protest started, it wasn't that violent, like, you know, so like at first they were, they were all gathered around like Mandalay train station and, you know, the crowds would be huge. And now like, because there's so much more violence, they have to be much more smart and they have to protest very shortly or, you know, protest in places that they don't think the police or like the military can reach. And Nyatao, which is a monastery in uh, Mandalay, has been very active in the protests and, um, Mandalay has been a hot spot for like a lot of violence as well, but there's also like a lot of protesters and a lot of people are also very unsatisfied with other monasteries because they have been quite silent and they just haven't been like involved in the protests. For example, one monk near my house was called by like the head monk of his monastery for like participating in the protests. I mean, like this is not your issue, you know? So there is like, although it looks from the surface, like everyone's protesting, there's still that like internal conflict, I would say. One thing I am very proud of of Mandalay is how much the LGBT plus community has showed up through almost every protest. So I used to work at PFLAG, like Pride Flag, basically like connecting teachers, not parents, but like their LGBT children. And like I am really like proud of how far the LGBT people have showed up to every event in Mandalay. Talk to us a little bit about LGBTQ and Myanmar and how, because I've heard a lot of different stories about some horrific treatment of the LGBT community in the protests and being singled out by military and police. Is that something that you saw yourself or that you have knowledge on? I used to work with a trans woman and there's something called the shadow law, which is something that the British created that basically if you look suspicious, um, they can come and arrest you. And that law is used on transgender women only so that transgender women who turn to sex work would be arrested in the middle of the night. This is before the protest, by the way. Um, they would be arrested in the middle of the night and like they would like have to pay the police to like get out. So it's a way for the police to like get an income. But things that they make them do are so, so degrading. There's sexual assault, there's physical violence. I remember one case where like they arrest like 10 or 12. I'm not exactly sure about the amount of trans women and they make them do a model show in the cell, just like degrade them, just to be like, oh, you're not a real woman. So like the treatment of trans women by the police has always been like there. But now like because of the protests, it's it's coming up again. So, you know, trans women, especially if the more visible they are, especially as trans, they are more in danger with the police. So there are like some horrific stories like oral sexual assault as well. They would make them do it. And it's because of the 
the law that the British has created. So that's one thing that they do. And speaking about my personal experience as an LGBTQ plus member, um, when I was younger, my parents used to say like, if you're gay this life, that means you're a home wrecker in your past life and that you destroy someone's marriage. And that's why you are not lucky enough to be born a straight person in this life. So there's this like heteronormativity within like Burma and like Buddhism. I can't speak for all races, but I know that in Prakine, Mon, uh, Burma, which are Buddhists, they still believe that, that like LGBTQ must members are home records and that's why they are um, not straight this life. So yeah, the thing is, I think when in prison, when in prison, we talk a lot about like sexual assault towards females, which is so important to women are sexually assaulted. But like even in 1988, they would like make them like men go up like a tree. And when they're there, they would like put a pole up their anus when they're not looking on purpose. Like, you know, like, because the way they degrade men by sexually assaulting them is to like make them like, oh, you're not real men anymore. Like we're taking away your manhood. So, you know, so there's like toxic masculinity there. They're trying to like take away the manhood of like the men. And they do that to like a lot of LGBTQ plus men. If you're not that visible, you are a bit luckier. You're quite visible with your voice. Anything you are more likely to be really violated by the police or the police are the main problem for um, trans women, not soldiers, at least in urban areas, Yangon and Mandalay. And thing near Shuidagong, there's a group where like trans women like work there and the police just arrest them in the middle of the night. And in Mandalay, the, okay, I don't know how to say it in English, the Joe, which is the main like fortress, <laughs> um, trans women would walk there and they would like just arrest them. So, um, yeah. So since the coup, I do think the same things have been happening towards trans women. I think they despise them because they like they don't act like real men in their perspective. You know, I think so. Yeah, there's that. Was there more freedoms for the LGBT community over the last few years under this democratic transition, this this NLD government? Did did you notice differences? Was there more freedoms? I mean, I know the laws were still there, but I mean, I I know there was big pride events when I was in Yangon and and all of these activities in people's park, like there were big huge events. So to me. As an outsider, it looked like a pretty liberal place to be, Yangon. And, but, you know, that's maybe not what it is. I mean, maybe you can explain it if that was the case. In my perspective over the five years, it has actually, I would say it has progress. You know, there are LGBT organizations in urban areas. You know, Monia has the LGBT like group. Every place of Mandalay has, you know, grown their LGBT plus like civil groups. But I do feel like it's still stuck in like cities and I feel like rural areas, nothing else has really changed. I feel like people are still not as educated as they should be about LGBTQ plus rights in rural areas. And I feel like only in urban areas, it's moving forward. And I don't feel like it's going forward in like areas that aren't urban. There's that. But um yeah, I would say over the last five years, the movement has gone forward. I mean, there's LGBT movies now as well, but... um like my friend is an LGBTQ plus director, like for LGBT movies. So I would say it has progress, but I feel like it's only in uh, urban areas. Also, this is not um, really had to do anything with your question. I just wanted to say this. When I was younger, like one of the characters that had a gay character, he was very femme. Like he wore lipstick and all, but he called himself a dad. He got, he was straight acting, like, like he was manly, I suppose. And then he got hit by a brick. And then the next day, it was like, he became like this gay. So they're trying to portray like LGBTQ plus people as like having a mental illness. And before the end of the movie, he was hit by a brick again. And that's when he becomes straight. Because like 
we'll see like everything is working here again. Like so they they portray like LGBTQ plus people movie as like editors, um, these type of people. I feel like these last five years, I still think there's a lot of like jokes around LGBTQ plus people in movies so much that are degrading jokes. But I feel like it has progressed a little bit. But I often wonder whether this like progress only applies to like privileged people, you know? But does it apply to people who like who aren't as privileged? You know, do they have time to learn about LGBT plus rights? Yeah. And I guess there's a real worry then of since the coup where LGBTQ would fit into Myanmar's future under the Tatmadaw, I imagine uh, there is not really going to be any room for that. No, absolutely not. First of all, they're Buddhist nationalists, Tatmadaw. I mean, I remember when the coup happened that they tell women that we wear like indecent clothes, that they will be arrested and stuff. If they post that they will be arrested and stuff. So I don't think LGBTQ plus rights will go anywhere. One thing that's strange about at least the Ma history, like I feel like in North America, they had like, or the British came, or the French came, there was like, you know, LGBTQ plus people, there's trans people, you know. One thing I noticed about Burma is that, at least in Burma people, we don't have that history. Like we don't have LGBTQ plus history before the British came, which kind of says something about how they were treated as well. If that makes sense, you know. I don't think we were treated better with colonization. I just think the British amplified it, with laws and like, you know. So obviously you're a student. Did you decide to apply to, to study to get out of Myanmar since the coup or was that on your agenda prior to the coup? No, it was um, prior to the coup. I applied for a disaster course, like disaster management at UCL. And now the coup has happened. I feel like I need, we're going to ask to change my master's because I want something to do with like violence. No, study about violence, not being violent. <laughs> but yeah, it was, um, I don't think I want to get out of Burma. So I like it. It's just not the safest place to be in. Yeah, because actually, like, I obviously know uh, some people that you also know, and one of them has said that you take a lot of risks in terms of your face and speaking out, and they're like, you take a lot of risks, uh, even when you were in the country. Is there a reason for that, or do you just not care, or do you, are you like, I'm not going to live in fear? What's your thinking there? I uh, This is going to sound a little delusional, but I just feel like they're just not smart enough to catch me. I just feel like, <laughs> I just feel like they're not that great at what they do. Like, I've seen the things that they do with military intelligence and I'm just thinking, because I study like military intelligence in other countries for a bit. And I'm just thinking like, you can't arrest me that easily. And second of all, I feel like I'm using Instagram, which is pretty safe. And finally, I'm just not that scared of them. Like, I'm just not like, they can't really like, it's hard to catch people. Like I can run and stuff. So I'm not that scared. Andy, on the other hand, my um, partner on the ground mutual aid is very worried. So she's, um, her Facebook was like wiped out. She deleted all of her photos. So understandable. Yeah. Yeah. You might not know the, the answer to this, but in terms of Instagram, I mean, I know that I've heard firsthand accounts of people when they're stopped having their phones checked and passwords yeah. being demanded and stuff. Do they just not check Instagram or do they, why is Instagram safer? I don't really understand. I think it's because they, just assume that people in Burma don't use Instagram that much. And also Instagram's a little hard to like connect as well. I do feel that other than Twitter. One thing I noticed about police checking is because, you know, we, there's a lot of checkpoints in like Yangon, Mandalay. The soldiers don't want to do it. They don't. They will just like pretend to do it. They will like open the car and be like, ah, just go. I think they're a bit sick of it as well. Like, yeah. When I was in like going to Yangon International Airport, they don't even do their job. Like, I think they're a bit sick of it. Like checking like Facebook and like, because everyone's like posting about it. 
What kind of security did you have in place or like what actions did you take when traveling from Mandalay to Yangon to get to the airport? Like, did you delete stuff from your phone? Did you hide stuff? Well, what precautions did you take? I had to go to Yangon twice because first I had to go for my tuberculosis or however it's pronounced, EB test. And my mom was super, super worried. So she gave me her phone, which she doesn't have any military affiliated contact. So I took her phone and I went to Yangon and I realized that they don't check anything. They just opened the car and they're like, oh, nothing's here. And I realized that like the second time around, I didn't do anything. I didn't put in any security. I just took my phone. I didn't delete any of that. And I just went to um, Mandalay to Yangon. But the Yangon International Airport, they wanted to check my phone at their entrance. So what I did was I um, put in the password. Like, you know, when you put the password, the wrong password in 10 times, the iPhone locked itself. I put in the wrong password 10 times. And I was like, sorry, officer, like, you see this, like, locked for one hour. And honestly, like, I know that, like, it's quite scary, but I do feel like some of them, the soldiers, I don't think they want to do it as well. Because even though they are ordered, they're not really doing it. Like, they check the back of the car for one second and they're like, okay, safe to go, you know? Would you take them not doing that to sign that they're not supportive of it or just they're literally sick of the fact that they've had to do it? Well, I think they're also like, I think a lot of them wanted to fact that they don't know how to because this is like their entire lives. You know, they work on this their entire lives. I think second of all, I don't think they wanted to, I don't think they want to arrest people. I honestly don't. Maybe I'm being too kind to them and maybe it's like, you know, they're forced to do it and now they're a bit sick of it. And it's been going on for so long. They might just not want to do this anymore. This job is like draining as well. Um, it just seems like there's such a contradiction in terms of what we're hearing about the human rights abuses, which obviously happen and there's sexual abuse in prisons. And then there's also seems to be a section of a police that are not supporting this and, and don't want it to happen and seem to be on the side of the people. Like, um, it does sound hopeful that there is that section, but then at the same time, you've still got these people that are using it to terrorize people and violate human rights. Yeah. Such a contradiction. I'll have to say though, the police are much more likely to defect because they grew up in an area where they interact with everyone, everyday people. So like they are aware of how things are. Well, soldiers are, it's much more difficult because their families are at a soldier compound, military compound, and they are like taken away when they're young from villages. So they're quite brainwashed as well. But yeah, there is that contradiction. The thing is, a lot of police officers are staying because they don't have anything else to do. It's good money. And there's like corruption. I used to work at juveniles and like they would ask for money for everything from like a, a defendant. Like if we're in prosecution, if we're like defending, they will ask money from my prosecutor. And like, I think it's easy money for them as well. So I think that's why they also don't want to leave. Like it's such an easy way to get money. And I, and I do feel bad to a certain extent because like we just in Myanmar are really bad. But yeah. But I work with police in like juvenile cases and many of them do feel like they don't like the military, but they just work there because that's just their livelihood, you know? I guess there is also a number of soldiers or, or police who are very evil and have carried out some really horrific things. And I guess you can't know when you're traveling, which one's going to stop you on a given day. You could get one of those guys who could take you out and just shoot you and not even check your phone. You know, we saw, you know, young doctors and nurses being taken from their apartment in Yangon a week or two ago and being shot dead on a bridge in the city. Like, Again, just very lucky that someone got a video of that or we wouldn't even know what had happened. So there's definitely an evil there. And I guess 
I mean, obviously you felt very confident, but you could have come across one of those soldiers. And you would you have been prepared for that? No, I think I would have just died. Oh my God, luck. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why I don't have that much fear. But um, the thing is, these soldiers that are quite brutal are usually sent to rural areas, especially rural ethnic minority area. You like traumatize them. Like say like, oh, like we do this, you know, like, the ones that did the Rohingya genocide were in the city as well, like in Gomali, but they were only there for a while. They were mainly focused on like um rural ethnic areas. So yeah, like there's like complete evil as well as in they committed a genocide. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. It makes a lot of sense what you're saying there though, because obviously if they're sent to a different culture, a different ethnicity, it's they're much more easily brainwashed into committing those kind of atrocities because they don't identify with them. But like you've explained, the police that work in the cities and know the people and know the community, it takes quite a character to then turn on on them. So it does make a lot of sense that the police in the cities and the soldiers are, you know, reluctantly doing their job rather than enjoying it, I guess. That's the thing about the soldiers is that the Thamador, I would have to say, like, credits credit to them, they're quite smart. They would choose to get, for example, Naga people in Sakai as a, a soldier on purpose, and they would make them attack Chin State on purpose. So that there's like instead of the Ma person doing it, so that there's like conflict between like Naga and Shin people, and they will get Shin Tamadol soldiers, and they will make them attack like Naga people. And now like for example the Gupi Chins and the Nagas don't get along too much, and like the military is like playing this game, like and they done this to Shan people. So you know ethnic armed organizations aren't always ethical either. So you know the military would like work around like other ethnic groups to like create bad blood. Bad blood is such a strange word to say, but very bad blood between like ethnic groups as well. I think another thing is if the soldier is from a village, an ethnic minority village, they are more likely to be brainwashed as well because they are taken away at a very young age. So in terms of like one of the things that has been, I guess, most prominent since February is the peacefulness of the Myanmar people in resisting the military. But we've seen a shift in the last while moving towards more of a defensive fighting back, you know, um, and I think it's important to say the word defensive because these, you know, people, ordinary, everyday people are under severe attack. And there is now a kind of a realization that the international community are not coming to help and the peaceful resistance is not saving us. What's your own thoughts on this shift? Are you supportive of it? Does it worry you? Do you think people have no option? This is a very sensitive subject, obviously. I'm usually for a peaceful protest because I do think that once you start with peaceful protests and you achieve your goals, there is also more likely to be peace after, you know? We've seen this in history where like ethnic armed organizations or armed organizations in general would take up arms and like fight the government. And after they win, there's another conflict in like that. Like, you know, in Ethiopia, there's a genocide. So like, I'm usually, usually for peaceful protests because I think we also have to think long-term and after we achieve this thing called democracy, but in this case, I do feel like people have been given no choices anymore. And like, you know, we have been resisting since like 1962. Like there were protests in 1974, 1988, you know, 2007. And it's still like we have never been able to achieve. There's been peaceful protests in 2007 by monks, like monks, and they shot monks. So like, I feel like this is the only way to go at this point. Yes, we will like, there will be a lot of problems. Like, for example, is PDF being ethical? Are the ethnic armed organizations been ethical? I wouldn't say so. You know, they're not always like doing the things that they should, you know. There has, for example, like 
AI takes a lot of, not anymore, not in the same extent, but they used to take like children, soldiers, and so on. So I'm for food arm resistance, but I do think that we need a strong code of ethics, especially with things like the land. We shouldn't just kill the land, you know, just because it's suspicious. Strong code of ethics when we deal with arm resistance, because arm resistance can easily go south. It's one of the things that like I'm really worried for all the time because you can always become the oppressor easily with armed forces, you know? Especially with Myanmar, since there's so many armed forces. American Army, Kitchen Independence Army, so many. And just to pick up on what you said there about the Dalan, like a Dalan, for anyone listening who doesn't know what that is, you can explain it. Well, Dalan is basically an informer of the military, and they are, basically they will tell you if there's someone doing CDM, Civil Disobedience Movement, if there's a PDF soldier, to the military officer or a police, and then they will come and like arrest you or like kill you. So Jalan is basically an informer. And uh, just to get back on that point about PDF, there has been some cases where like even on Facebook, they will kill, like straight up kill the Jalan, like really hardly. They will post it. And I'm just thinking like, yes, like, of course, like we should not let them like easily go if they're an informer. But is that extent really necessary? Like kill them brutally as well. Like, like I saw someone like basically like they hit the land until like he, he died, you know, getting back to what we said, like it is still hard. Like I'm for armed resistance at the moment, always in the back of my mind. Like, are we being fair? You know, it does make me wonder, like how you were saying about how clever they were in terms of making sure the soldiers from different ethnic minorities are the ones that go in. Whether this, yeah. I'm not denying the fact that there will be delance, but maybe there's kind of that fear element that people are then start not trusting each other, pointing fingers, and then it, it just escalates further into those kind of videos that just become a psychological scare factor that actually benefits the Tamador because you're not trusting people, you're not uniting together, you're suspicious. And yeah, it, it sounds like it could work both ways. It's not just people benefiting and accepting monies for being informers, but also it's going to be a, a massive trust issue within communities that someone could be betraying them. Yeah, and exactly what you said, Ruth, that was a very great point. My parents literally stopped talking to the neighbors because of that. Now, like, community building or, like, community resilience is so much more harder because people can't trust each other. Now that people can't trust each other, it's harder to build a movement as well. So I think this is one of the things, tactics that the military is doing. But at the same time, what choice do we have as well? You know, can't trust, like, people easily, you know? One thing about the land is they are, sometimes they tend to be like wife of a military soldier or, you know, the children. So sometimes it's easy to spot them, but sometimes it's really, really hard to spot them. You never know. And what is the motivation of a Dalan? Financial fear? Is it like they support the military or they're desperate? Like what, you know, because I've seen some who were not military affiliated or it didn't seem like they were anyway. Maybe they just owned a shop locally or, or something. So I just wonder, are they being threatened themselves or are they being put under financial pressure, being offered bribes to give that information? I'm not going to lie. I haven't done enough research on this, so I can't really tell. But I do think that there is a financial, I believe, there is a financial gain for being at the land. But I also know that they, some of them has a good relationship with the soldier, for example. Like when I was working with like juveniles, the police would have a good relationship with like staff at the police office and the staff at the police office will be like telling who that person who's doing civil disobedience movement. And so there's also that like socializing between both of them, you know? Um, but, um, yeah. And also, can I just say this is that, God, I don't want to talk too much about my dad, but he would say things like, Oh, we can't trust the Chinese. They're the land. 
you know, we can't trust this type of group. So like, it is quite bad because, you know, the military is doing divide and rule, just like the English did. And it's kind of working because like, like they're, they have mistrust of the Chinese, so they have mistrust of Indians. They're like, they're not Burmese enough. So like, you know, there's this idea going around as well. There's racism as well, you know? I'm wondering if we're going to start seeing a shift away from that in the sense that now that the majority Bamar Buddhist people are being slaughtered and killed, that now it's no longer, oh, the ethnic groups are who we need to fear because it's the soldiers are killing, you know, essentially their own people now. So I just wonder how long this fear of others will be when now the soldiers are killing their own you know, this is a big shift that we haven't really seen as much. Well, we did see it with the monks in, in 2007, but. I was on a phone with my friends from Naga. I'm self-administered. I hate that one. Don't. And he was talking like how like the military divide and rule tactic was working beforehand. Like, you know, they didn't get along. But now like the military is killing literally everyone. The Ma Buddhists, the Burma in the region, the region has like held their hands together with the Naga and start like understanding what they have gone through. There is like this, um, I think the Ma people and, and Moon Buddhists, Prakayan Buddhists as well, are becoming more aware of the fact that ethnic armed organizations aren't this like one-sided evil group that they believe it is. Um, my dad would say something like, oh, like any ethnic armed organization that works with the military is shit. You know, it's, it's bad, you know? But like for me, I didn't do enough research on it, but I did enough research and like they had to protect themselves from the other ethnic organization that is dominating them. So they have to side with the military. You know, that's an example of like, but now like the military is killing the Mahabudis, everyone, there's much more um, trust in each other and there's much more understanding. And, you know, so many issues have popped up, LGBTQ plus rights, women's rights, so, you know, yeah. I'm just wondering how you know so much about or how you have so much understanding and compassion for other people. Like you seem very liberal and open minded. So how do you get like that growing up in Myanmar's education system? Oh, I think I am. Um, it's because I'm just gay. I always knew that I was different. And that's cool. Like I would get like, I was visibly queer. I mean, you can hear my voice. Come on. <laughs> I was visibly queer. So like, um, you know, when you're gay and when you're discriminated by something you sort of understand what other people are going through as well so you know that's how like i started how i started educating myself about other people but it wasn't even until like i got to the uk i got much better education system i would have to say i had I have a certain understanding of certain groups yeah i think that's something that i kind of like to say just almost kind of in defense of myanmar but we like i'm British. So in terms of our education system, we've had to like pass laws and make sure that it's in the curriculum to teach kids to be open-minded and like embrace diversity. So it's just, it's not even like a progression that we've got there by ourselves. Do you know what I mean? We've had to make these steps to make sure that it is inbuilt within the system. Just in terms of, if you go to a remote village in Myanmar, they might have never I mean, their brother might be gay and they don't realise it. Or they might not have been, you know, had any experience other than like the kind of stories that your parents would say. So I just, yeah, I do. I feel like it's very, it's not kind of fair to judge them by the same standard. Not that you were at all. Obviously, you've got first-hand experience. I'm not trying to like explain your experience to you. But I just, yeah, I just wanted to say that. But I'm very glad that you had that experience in the UK. And another thing is, I think it's also with the education system in itself. Once you're young, we were taught that it was a Buddhist country and that like I remember in my Burmese class they would be like, Oh like 
like Anorata, who was the first king of like united the Burma as a kingdom, was like he created, like he protected Buddhism, like you know, because of him, like Burma became Buddhist. I'm like, when I grew up, I was like, no, the Pu and the Muns were the one that spreaded Buddhism. The Burma basically like took over because like history is so connected around like Burma culture, Burma history. I just thought this is the history for everyone. And I feel like that's why like certain people in this country are still not able to see what ethnic minorities are seeing. Like, okay, even like history of colonization, it's not the same for everyone, you know? Like you can't just use the modern history for everything. So I think education system is something that we have to fix. Well, not now, because we can't do anything at the moment. But if we went back to democracy. In terms of your own experience then, when did you go to the UK first? When I was um, 18. It was very um, scary at first. I'm not going to lie. I was excited about boys and everything. So I was really happy <laughs> at the same time. Um, but yeah, I was 18. And you did your undergraduate studies there? I did um, international relations and development studies at Sussex, Brighton. Lovely city. You're in Brighton? Yeah. Yeah, best, was... best place to go to experience liberalism in terms of like having an exciting nightlife and stuff. <laughs> It was very green and indie and like, I felt ashamed because I was like, I was listening to like these mainstream pop artists and everyone was like, have you listened to this band? I'm like, not really. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. <laughs> so you went back then to Myanmar after your undergraduate. Yeah. On that yeah, I did. We're doing what you were telling us at the beginning. And now you're going back to do your master's education. Can I just say something? Is mm-hmm. that a lot of international, Burmese international students, many of them were children of police, military officials, and they come back to Myanmar and they don't contribute anything with this startup business, like a completely like random business. That's not even with them. That's the elite, for example, like a bakery that nobody can afford except like the very rich, a bar that is quite expensive. So like I met a lot of Burmese in London that I felt were just so disconnected from like reality in Burma. And once they go back, I felt like they didn't contribute as much as they could, you know? And why do you think that is? Because I often wonder that as well. Like, I wonder how, like, because obviously, you know, even myself, I would have taught a lot of military students, you know, from military backgrounds, you know, who were lovely students and to me seemed so full of compassion and intelligent and just really lovely kids. But often we see, you know, these kind of students go off to university and come back and just continue what's been happening for years. Like you would like to think that their minds would be changed on the the educational journey, that they would go to the UK or or the US or one of these countries and come back and want to help their country. But they don't. They seem to just follow in the footsteps of their parents. And it's it's a strange one. Are, Are they so indoctrinated when they're younger that even those years away doesn't really change anything or? So the thing is. Something I've noticed among like international Burmese students when I was in London is that they would stick around themselves and they would talk to each other only. So that like, I felt like they, and they study business. A lot of them study business as well. Not that I'm not trying to shit on the degree, but they, <laughs> you know, but not only are they, were they disconnected when they go, but when they leave to the US, they have this, because they're quite wealthy. They have this idea of like enjoying it and they hang around among themselves, which crony kids are like military affiliated kids and you know, it's not a learning opportunity for them. It's like a way to get away from home to like live the life, you know? So, yeah. And when they come back, oh my God, I, the amount of businesses that they start that are so inaccessible to like working class people is ridiculous. Yeah. I know one of my friends like went to school with a lot of military students, like military kids. 
and has been like really shocked since the coup in how they've openly supported what's happening and, and gone against the people, people that they would have thought were quite liberal like them. And, and, you know, they would have been friends. And I think for a lot of people, something like this has shown people's true colors, you know, underneath it, they're not supportive of the general population. They're, they're supportive of holding on to their power and their wealth. I think for me, like, when I look at controversial figures like Suji, and when I look at like a lot of political figures in general, activism is always about like, you know, not just about like putting like the right minorities to the front, but it's also realizing your privilege and knowing that you're going to lose that privilege when things happen. But you, you have to lose a privilege. It's, you know, or like bring people to bring people up. And I felt like these people, these international school students, Burmese students realized that like their wealth is at threat, you know, their income is at threat, their power is at threat. And, they cannot support it. Um, the amounts of Burmese international students that I met in London that were so like, Black Lives Matter, trans life are important, and now they haven't spoken up about the coup. Ridiculous, because now like, it's easy to support movements that you will not lose anything by, you know, but like, once you support pro-democracy movements, you will lose that access to like, you know, the military by like, access to like, or millions of wealth. Yeah, I do think that. Um, yeah. Oh my God. Oh, I could talk shit about them all day. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> they were living in a conversation that cost like 400 pounds per week in London. Yeah. And they hang around themselves. They go to rich areas. So like even when they go to the UK, they're not interacting with working class people or like normal university students. They were interacting with other rich international students or other rich Burmese international students. not interacting with like the general public. I don't feel like they are. Again, though, I, I do feel like that's something that so many are guilty of. Like going back to what I'm saying at the beginning, in terms of the difference, people's worlds they very rarely leave them. So that is why, like Suzanne was saying, the, the fact that you are so open and you're so educated and you're so willing to speak out is so fantastic. And we need more people like you. And I don't just mean in Myanmar; I mean like generally across the world. I mean, you're in Dubai right now. Like the amount of I imagine white expats were just sitting with white expats spending a lot of money in their little circle and never leaving it, not finding out about the country or, or how, you know, the diversity outside of that city and all that kind of thing. It's unfortunately something that everyone too easily falls into, I guess. Yeah. The thing is, unless you interact with everyone in that country, you're only going to get like that part of experience. I mean, like the amount of, like, I don't want to say Western because I think not white. I don't want to say white. I want to say Western, Western tourists in like Thailand that exploit that. Sex work is like ridiculous it's because they stay in the circles, but they don't really see it. That's my personal belief. Yeah, I completely agree with you there. And I think because you know, me and Suzanne both were international school teachers, some amazing students, brilliant individuals, fantastically open minded. And we took them to like the blind school in Yangon. And for some of them, it was just it was such a culture shock. And it's like this is literally 10 minutes away from where you go to school every day, and you had no idea it existed. and it's it's very easy to just stay in your own little world in your own little bubble and it's not necessarily always the fault of the person although you could I guess argue that everyone has a moral responsibility to educate themselves but it doesn't necessarily make them bad people. No I don't think so as well because um they also live in areas that it's just full of people like them as well and they go to places for example like when I was like back in school they would go to Mampuku which is like a good Korean barbecues so they don't even eat like places where like you know so they are really disconnected like they've never been to like Daya places like that I don't blame them because like you know I don't think it's like when you're young I don't think it's that much of a responsibility as well when you're like under 18 but 
I do think when you're after 18 and you go abroad, I think that's pushing the limits a bit. You realise I just said that comment directly after you were talking about sex work in Thailand and I was by no means applying it to that. That is it's a horrible and like I'm always ashamed to be a tourist when I go to Thailand. So, yeah. No, we all can get caught up in our own little worlds and our own life. It's true. But when something like the coup happens and you see this brutality happening to your people, like it, it shocks me that they're not moved, in, you know, and that they wouldn't put that above their wealth or their prestige. Like, you know, I think it's a fundamental difference when something huge like that happens. And it's a warning to all of us in all countries. Like, this could happen to you. I mean, it could. It could happen to any of us. Like, politicians are now in prison or dead. You know, famous musicians, actors, actresses, doctors, teachers. Like, every demographic in society has been killed or tortured or imprisoned wrongly in Myanmar. And if we don't, like, open our... And not just Myanmar. Like, look at Hong Kong. Look at Thailand. Like, there's so much going on in the world right now that I think people need to start really paying attention to. And not just looking at themselves and their own world. And, you know, looking outside, like, what's happening and realizing that, like, the world doesn't center around you as well. I think um, one thing about activism that I always say is that, yes, you're willing to fight for yourself, like being a woman, you know? Are you willing to accept that, like, you're a rich woman? Are you willing to accept, like, for example, like, people always talk about how disadvantaged you are, but it's harder sometimes to even talk about your advantages you have. And I feel like that's what's up with, like, military-affiliated kids. A lot of them will talk about, like, gender issues, you know, and stuff, but, like, they're not talking about things like wealth. What you said about Hong Kong and everything is really true as well. People really need to start like learning. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. we all looked at the Hong Kong protests. Like I, I looked at them while sitting in Myanmar going, glad I didn't take a job in Hong Kong. <laughs> that was my reaction to that. And that's the truth. Oh, we, we must not go there on our holidays, you know. But the reality was, you know, a few months later, you know, or less than a year or whatever, we're seeing it in Myanmar, you know. And now I have friends in Thailand who are seeing these protests there. So you know, there is a shift happening around the world. I mean, we can see the fragmentation in all. I can see it here in Ireland. You know, it, it's hugely different from when I left it to what I'm experiencing now. There seems to be this huge clash of ideals and beliefs going on. And yeah, I think there's a bigger problem in the world. But but certainly if these people who have the, the power and the money to leave places like Myanmar, educate themselves, get educated in the top universities in the world, and all they can come back and it's open a really expensive bar or bakers. We're doing something very wrong in the world, you know. Um, if they're the people getting the opportunities, you know. It's quite selfish, to be fair. Just straight up selfish. Because, like, you are not growing up in the West. Well, you do see a lot of poor people in the West. You'll see a lot of homeless people in the West as well. There's a lot of working class, but you see a lot of middle class. But if you're in Burma and you come back to open an expensive restaurant, you're just not acknowledging poor people. You're just pretending like they don't even exist, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's not a good year for democracy in Asia, is it? <laughs> no, definitely not. So what, Hain, what is your plans for the future? How long is your master's? A year or two years? One yeah. year. Do you have a plan beyond yeah. that? So I'm going to do a master's. I'm excited about my thesis. I think I want to do it on Chin people in India. So like Chin refugees in India. What I want to do after my master's is go into research. So hopefully a PhD. So that's my um, goal. I really want to do in the United States. First of all, I think the PhD programs there are so much better. If they're six years, then they make you teach and they make you like help with research and anything other than doing like research for three years without like any teaching experience or anything like in the UK and all of Europe. So I want to do that in the US. And plus I want to experience the United States and, you know, 
So my goal is to continue working on Burma, but more as a researcher than an activist, which I have to keep in mind that a lot of researchers are quite exploitative. So I hope not to become that person, you know? And this is very number like I read a really good article about researchers re-traumatizing like um range of women like asking about making them open up about their experience of sexual violence again and again. And that's one thing I want to keep in mind if I do want to go into research. Am I really helping people or is it for my thesis, you know? Yeah, it's actually one of the things that when I was chatting, I was saying this to somebody earlier as well, to someone recently about the kind of refugee process, you know, in coming into Ireland or other countries. And when you have to kind of prove what's happened to you, it can be quite a degrading, horrific experience where people have got to relive and, and almost prove how brutal it was in the most like, you know, intimate details of what's happened to them. And, and so I do think there needs to be yeah, maybe a relooking at how how we do these things in these countries. So I would feel more hopeful with people like you um, in these positions because it is quite demoralizing. And, you know, you're asking somebody to pour all of their experiences to a complete stranger in a very kind of cold and sterile way in order to prove to you that they can't go back to their country. You know, um, yeah, it does worry me that a lot of people are just exploiting people suffering for, you know, I don't know whether it's for reports or whether it's for funding or whether it's for kind of trauma porn, I call it. <laughs> just like people seem to be, you know, getting pleasure out of listening to people's horror stories. Definitely um, trauma porn. I, I have to agree with that. So, um, I don't know that like a few LGBTQ plus people were deported out of UK because they weren't gay enough. And I was just thinking, you know, I think um, trauma porn is something that I want to avoid if I ever want to go into research. Like researchers do it for themselves a lot of the time. They don't do it for the people. That's one thing that I have to keep in mind. Do you think um, researchers in Burma are more exploitative or something? What do you think? It's hard to know. I mean, I've been questioning a lot of things lately because I've been reading different reports coming out. And I'm like, what is the point of this report? Or what is the point of even an article? Like, how are you advancing or helping the people of Myanmar with this? Like, sometimes it just reads like clickbait. Sometimes it reads like they have no idea of what's happening on the ground. I'm like, who are you talking to? I mean, I'm talking to people and I know more, like, you know, and it's not my job. I'm not like to be researching. So some of it feels out of touch with the actual people on the ground that they're getting the information for the same five sources that the whole world is getting their information from in Myanmar. Like we need to talk to more than five people, some who haven't been in Myanmar for 20 years. Like what, what could they know? It changes vastly. You know, Myanmar five years ago versus Myanmar today is hugely different. And anyone who lived there five years ago could not give you an up-to-date picture of Myanmar right now. I think, Ruth, I think you could testify to that as someone who hadn't visited it and then lived in it at two different times. Also, my own ignorance, like, in both times. Like, my mum lived there, like, years ago. So I've been, when I was younger, <laughs> and then, like, more recently. So I completely, like, second what you've just said, Suzanne, but also I really do feel like there needs to be so much more exposure and research done to educate people generally. I do just feel like there's so much ignorance. And you listen to these people on the news. And I remember when the coup first happened, like the BBC had a reporter from Bangkok. And it's like, they were in Bangkok. They weren't even in Myanmar. And they were relying on just like some people to give them some information from the ground. And it was so kind of like, it was bad reporting. And I guess that's like why now it's not being reported because they don't have the connections. And that's, terrible like people should be knowing what's going on they should be educated about the whole story and the background to it because then when things like the Rohingya genocide hit the western media for 
Aung San Suu Kyi. All anyone associates in the West with Myanmar is Aung San Suu Kyi and the Rohingya genocide. They don't know anything else about it. I feel like, yes, there are bad researchers who do uh, become, you know, egotistical about it. They want their own face to be, you know, the forefront of what they're doing. But I do feel that the more research done, even in spite of those people, and the more people are educated about it generally, the better. That's great. Like, you know, there's definitely a disconnect between like research and like reality. A lot of international news media don't really care about local journalism as well. They don't feel like local journalists have anything of value to like add to them. And then they would send like, there is a war. I don't have that big of a problem with that. You know, but like, this is like on the surface reporting on like someone. Why can't you just listen to like Nizo who has been living here? You know, she can give you a better report as well. Why does it have to come from a white person for you to like, be like, oh, actually that's happening. Why can't you just listen to a Burmese person and be like, that's valid, you know? Wow. Cool. Um, just just on that point, like when I first came back to Ireland, there was like a, a news station here wanted, I was back a couple of weeks and it was in March when they killed like 120 people in one day, you know, and there was a really brutal day. So that made the news here. And I, a journalist had contacted me through somebody to see if I would come on and speak about Myanmar. And at the time, I was still under contract in Myanmar, even though I'd left the country, I had to see out my contract for the year online. So I, I was not allowed to speak about anything. It was in my contract before, like the coup, like, you know, we're not allowed to speak about politics in public. So I said, I can't. But I said, there is a Burmese person here in Ireland that I can put you in touch with and who will happily speak to you. Sorry, we don't really have much time. Thanks anyway. Like, so, you know, they just wanted the white face, you know, the, the Irish person, not like a Burmese person living who is a resident in Ireland, you know, is Irish in that sense. But yeah, they didn't want that story. Our pain only becomes valid when like a white person validates it. I was just going to say, I feel like it's a problem with our news that in order to get the people of the country to listen, they need to like identify with the person telling them the news. And I just feel like that's got so many repercussions um, for problems like internationally. It's, it's almost like a way of maintaining nationalism. Like you're not identifying with the people from that country. You're not listening to them speak firsthand because they are removed from you. You have to hear via someone with the same accent as you, with the same, not ethnicity in, in the UK necessarily, but it's just a, it's a real problem that then keeps you farther removed from empathy with the actual country. And I, I do wonder whether it's deliberate, to be honest, because if everyone did care as much about everyone else in the world, hopefully these kind of things would not be happening anymore. I just really wish that like Burmese journalists were amplified in this case. And I also think that when Burmese journalists are amplified, the ones that are amplified are also the ones who could speak English. There are a lot of Burmese journalists that we could just translate the work, actually put it out there, you know? One of the great things about the people like Ted and um, Coop Bellies on, on Instagram who are translating Burmese news for an English audience. And I think that they're doing a really great job. And that's because a lot of the news they're getting is from Burmese journalists, you know, and they're translating it rather than it being English speaking journalists. Exactly. You know, um, there's a lot of, but to be fair, like Burmese people do speak a lot of shit though. They're <laughs> still quite national. No, they, they are still quite nationalistic. And like, you know, what's funny is um, Buddhism has escaped trial from like nationalism all the time. You know, everyone sees Buddhism as this like peaceful religion, but now like it's Buddhism's time, you know? People start thinking what it is. Yeah. 
think every religion ends up with that side of it, you know, the bad side of it. We've seen it in every religion. And after a while, it will destroy Buddhism because people will turn away from it because of the connotations of violence of these people that are hijacking this religion as well. Yeah. And, and that was the one thing I first noticed when I lived in Myanmar, how different Buddhism was there. Monks with like phones and cameras and cigarettes. It was very different to the monks I left behind in like Thailand and Cambodia. I was like, what the hell? <laughs> it's just not what, you know, they were not meant to have any kind of material belongings. And here they had like, you know, watches and not all of them, obviously. But, you know, I certainly saw enough of those in Myanmar. It was probably just because they were doing their like monk service. Probably wasn't the dedicated ones that, but you know, dedicate their lives. Yeah, yeah, it probably not. Or you know, even now, you know, we saw in the early stages of the protests some people who we believe were just dressed up as monks, yeah, mashing things. Yeah, yeah, that happens too. Um, it's just quite sad, isn't it? How like they are the main point of Buddhism is to not have desires, and you have like, I saw a monk with an LV bag, and I'm like, like, you must be on crack. Just like, come on, like, and like among that, my grandma used to like worship had like seven eight buildings in its like compound and i was just thinking like this is money that could have gone to like any other thing i'm not saying a monk shouldn't have this a monk shouldn't be if you're going into like becoming a monk don't aim to be rich you know sorry but that's just how things should be like, if you're following the religion and like i went and stepped in a monastery and stuff and um where was i since began and i loved that side of it that it was so open and that you could just embrace it and and it was accessible and to me personally Buddhism isn't the issue I agree with what you said that it's never been demonized in the same way that I guess like Islam has and Judaism has but I really do feel it's human nature that take from a religion what, what they choose to and not necessarily the religion itself and there's like yeah that just like there's plenty of amazing peaceful pacifists Muslims there will be Buddhists as well and that you get people that are going to exploit religion in every religion and and use it for their own benefits and to demonize others and I well it's not very nice but I like to think that's that individual and that's that person's human nature rather than the religion itself yeah and in a way I'm quite happy that the world can see that like there's so much Buddhist nationalism because I'm a bit like like every time I meet foreigners, they would have been like, oh, like Buddhism is such a peaceful religion. It is a peaceful religion. The religion itself is not a problem. It's the people misusing the religion. So I'm very glad that people are seeing like that Buddhists are also like ethno religious nationalism and that it can also become a source of like oppression, you know? Yeah. And yeah. If, if people are in doubt, you just tell them Min Online is a Buddhist and that's all they need to know if they if you want to know who can call themselves a buddhist these days like you know and we see all these pictures of him getting blessings from monks and you know all of that is very very questionable in terms of the religion certain monks have been working i, I remember i think um one of the monks told me online because mailing and the military is too superstitious mm-hmm. are very superstitious that they should aim for the hat because that's like bringing good down like they should but I'm I'm also glad because um I know like this isn't the best thing to say, but I'm glad that various people are just wearing a monks now that are helping the military because I feel like before we used to respect the monk so much that we wouldn't like if a monk is like helping me online or like you know even helping the genocide we wouldn't have the guts to say like what we want. But now like we see no you're not a real monk if you're like doing this if you're helping the military kill people like you're basically violating the rules of Buddhism. You know? So I'm glad that. That culture has shifted. 
just when you mentioned that about people speaking out more, because one of the things like even from my own experience in Myanmar, when I'm trying to get my students to challenge me or question me, which is a very hard thing to do, whereas in the West, it's very hard to get them to stop doing that. You know, so it really is a kind of cultural thing that, you know, you respect those in a position over you. You know, you don't really speak back and you don't question things. But this coup, we've seen people boldly speaking out and questioning things and authority for the very first time on such a big scale. Do you think that's a positive thing coming out of the coup? Yeah, definitely. I think the same case happened in Nepal when there was a civil war. Yes, the war, civil conflict, actually, um, women are, you know, exploited. Uh, LGBTQ plus people are so, you know, a lot of people get exploited, but it's also a time for reflection and question. So I think that this coup helped us to reflect on, like, the inequalities that exist in Burmese society. And now we're thinking about like, oh, like, yeah, we should respect our elders, but we shouldn't let them dictate everything about our lives, you know? So I think that this coup, I would also say this coup is positive for that. I would genuinely say, although they are very discriminated, this coup is also like a protest for women's rights, a protest for LGBTQ rights, because it always needs a movement to bring these like issues to the top, so, you know? And it's also a way for us to reflect about what kind of Buddhism we want in the country. We want like monks that associate with male line and not speak up to them. Do we want them to continue running, you know? There needs to be repercussions. Yeah, and I think it's important what you're saying because you can respect your elders, but questioning someone is not disrespectful. I mean, if something is wrong and you stand up and say this is wrong and, and educating elders, because you guys are the young people, you have all this education that people above you didn't have, you know, so... There's a kind of responsibility with your knowledge as well is to respectfully give that information to people who don't have it yet in a, in a respectful way. I mean, I'm not saying we should all start shouting at our parents, <laughs> disagreeing with them, but certainly, you know, to start bringing the conversation forward and, and being more brave in, in that as well. I agree 100%. It also, I think one thing about the coup is also make privileged members of the group reflect on their privilege as well. Like a man, like start wearing like tamay on their hats and stuff and, you know, these old concepts of like these old cultural concepts that were quite dangerous. Like home, I don't know if you know home, like has been like not destroyed, but has been like disrupted and like, you know, being told like, okay, we don't want to practice this cultural elements anymore. So I think it's a good thing for like progression. I don't think I even answer what you asked or what your topic was. <laughs> <laughs> I just go wherever I want to go sometimes. You'd make a great politician. <laughs> Like dodging the question. No, I'm joking. <laughs> when Suchi, I remember there was a video of Suchi being asked about like LGBTQ plus rights. And she's a politician that deflects a lot as well. I don't know if you noticed, but she does. Um, she didn't use the word LGBTQ plus. She didn't use gay anything, but she would say things like, oh, like our society is not educated enough. We need to start educating people about like human rights and everything so that we can progress, you know? And a lot of people were praising her. They were like, oh, yeah, she understands. But I wasn't because I was like, she didn't even use these terms, you know. She's just trying not to be controversial, but also seemingly progressive. That makes sense. So I'm just wondering, like, I often wonder that with Aung San Suu Kyi. Like, did she feel like the country wasn't ready for all of this? Or, or like, was she always trying to keep people on side? Because she herself should have been quite progressive based on, or was she one of these people who lived in a bubble in the UK that we talk about that go and study abroad? and only hang out with their rich friends and then go back and open a bar, you know, that no one can afford to go to. Does she fit into that category of people that went abroad, I wonder? I used to be a bit more obsessed with Suji. Now I'm much more like, I keep her accountable. Um, I watched a documentary about her when she was in London 
and she was with posh kids in Oxford, but I think she hanged around like a lot of people. So I do think that she has different perspectives and she was working on like Nepalese history with her husband and, you know, and she had a children. So I do think that she was actually quite grounded, but I think people mistook her for a left-wing politician. I think she was always center from the start. It's just that once you come back to Myanmar to become a politician, you become trapped. And because she became trapped and she became under house arrest, she became this figure of left wing, like, you know, activism, but she was never that. I remember there was a book where she was under house arrest and they asked her if she was a feminist and she said no, just straight up said no. She said no as a feminist. Even when she was under house arrest, she was never left wing. She was never going, I don't think she was ever even that passionate about federal democracy and stuff. I just think people thought she was because they put her in this bubble where they think she's under house arrest. She's all about like activism. She's all about like, but in reality, she's more about reconciliation with the military, peacefulness, I guess, in the country. And I remember she told, I think, a, a Rakhine state, like they weren't ready for a federal democracy. So I do think that Western people in general and also Burmese people in general put her as this left-wing politician because she was under house arrest. When in reality, she was not similar to like Martin Luther King. She was more similar to like politicians, if that makes sense. She's more similar to maybe, this is an example. She was more similar to like Lee Kuan Yew and stuff. She was always a politician. But um, I don't think what you said was, I don't agree that she was like in a box in the UK. I do think she interacted with people and she has different views, but I don't think she was ever left-wing or progressive from the start. I genuinely don't. And I think when you are absent from the conversation for 15 years, people start to speak for you without anything to go on, you know, and, and we're seeing that again now. Even just one example, like, I mean, I think there was an article, I think a number of, of journalists ran with it in the last, about two weeks ago, saying, oh, you know, she has no comment on... And this was the headline, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, no comment on the violence or, you know, the people's defense. And then when you read the article, there was actually a comment. She actually had said something. And I was like, well, why are you running with a headline saying no comment? And in the article, you actually have a comment that she made through her lawyer. So I think, again, that's like, you know, the world deciding what story they want to spin and putting words in her mouth or taking the words out of her mouth and saying she didn't have words. So I, I think that's a real worry. We will never know. Uh, you know, the motives or Aung San Suu Kyi's thinking through other people, like unless she tells us. I guess like when you're under house arrest, you also have a lot of trauma as well. And um I remember her party has a lot of ex-military members as well, NLD. And because she was under house arrest for a long time, she was asked what the best quality you look for in a person. And she said loyalty. And that kind of plays out in politics where she keeps people loyal to her because you can't trust people in politics, especially in Myanmar. But these people are not competent. These people are not great at the job. And these, some of these people that she used to work with are literally corrupt. But she would keep them around because she said loyalty is so important, you know? And she puts loyalty above, I feel like, competence, which is strange because like, when you look at people like Park Chung Hee in South Korea or like Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, they put competence over everything. But she's different. She's different. So, And you're right about people speaking up over her. People do make assumptions about her. And I think over the last 15 years, she was under house arrest. People assume that she would fight for minority rights. But when in reality, if you read in depth about her, she wasn't that obsessed with like, obsessed is the wrong word. She wasn't that um, radical about like uh, federal democracy. She didn't, she didn't talk that much about like other ethnic minorities and their human rights. She did talk about them, but not to that extent. What she was and what they expected was different, if that makes sense. I mean, she herself said, I'm not a feminist. Like, she just said no to it, you know? And I think 
like from when she was under house arrest, I think people would assume she's a feminist for sure because she was, you know, oppressed by the toxic masculinity military. But in reality, it's different. Yeah. And do you feel more hopeful now for a new, a new Myanmar? You know, if, if the people can, can win and, I mean, I don't like to say too much about what I think, but from what I'm hearing from people on the ground, I'm feeling a little bit more confident about the movement. And the information I'm receiving suggests that the Tatmada are in a bit of trouble uh, and this could go right. I mean, it's, it's hard to know, but I, I trust in a lot of the information I'm hearing. If they are successful, the people in overthrowing this military, what would you want in the, the future? I assume you wouldn't want an Aung San Suu Kyi government back in power. Or would you be open to that or against that? I'm open to whatever the people want because a lot of ethnic minorities also voted for NLD as well. So I am open to that, but I want NLD to fire a lot of their staff, a lot of the party members, and I want NLD to put competence over everything. And I want NLD to start really thinking about federal democracy. Like that is your goal. Why weren't you working towards that like crazily these last five years? You know, I don't have that big of a problem with NLT at the moment. I don't think, I don't like them that much, but I think that they could, like, if they are back in power, I think this time it will be different because people's priorities have changed. People have changed and they want, you know, they want more progressive politics. And if they are to be able to be more progressive, yeah, I'll allow it. But if they want, I think there needs to be a strong opposition party. And I hope that this time young people will be leading it. Yes. On Sensuji always used to talk about like how young people missed out on education and that's why she has older people. But I think she's underestimating how much young people has to offer. So I think after we win back democracy and young people should lead. And I don't want democracy. I want a federal democracy. You know? I want a place where like ethnic minorities can rule and like have their own celebrate their own culture. So yeah, that's something I want. And I want peace. Peace. <laughs> peace would be nice. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people say that as well. They're just looking for like a very simple, basic things, not in luxurious or, you know, like over the top. We just want a peaceful life where we can all have freedom and basic human rights. Just in terms of just when you're saying about the NLG, because somebody I spoke to recently said to me, I went in and I didn't even look at who I was voting for. I just looked for the NLG colors and voted. And like, they were like, all I wanted, I didn't care who this person was, what they'd ever done in their life. I just wanted as many percentage of the votes to be NLD to try and get rid of this military once and for all. Do you think a lot of people went into the voting with that attitude? Yes. Um, I was talking to my neighbors and they were like, oh yeah, we voted for NLD. And I asked them like, what policy specifically do you like of NLD? And they're like, oh, we just have to vote because the military, you know, we just have no choice. And I think the problem with Burma within the last five years is that there were so many political parties, but many of them were affiliated with the military. The military was playing games. So like, for example, there were two parties in one. One is affiliated with the military and one is not. That makes people distrust these ethnic parties. And that makes them like go like, okay, NLD is the only choice. Like, you know, like another Rakhine party was working with like the military, but the other Rakhine party wasn't working with the military. But the people don't know that, you know? So like there's people vote for NLD thinking like this is the only way forward. Another problem is that people aren't informed that well on politics. They just, I feel like they're not voting for NLD because they're voting for Aung San Suu Kyi, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like they don't even know who their candidates are, like who the chief minister for Mandalay is. They don't know, they just voted like Aung San Suu Kyi will bring. But 
for a country to like succeed politically and economically, it has to be built around a system, not one person. And I feel like NLG, everything is about authenticity, whereas in like, it needs to be about a party. We need to ask a serious question, is NLG competent? Is NLG going to fight for federal democracy? Is NLG going to do something about the Rohingyas that they literally ignored for, you know, years? And why, why are they so upset with reconciliation with the military? It's because they have military members inside the party, you know? Yeah, ex-military members. So I hope we can move up from unsensitive politics as well. I hope we can move on to Burmese politics as well. I still like her. I still admire her. I think what she's gone through in her time in house arrest, like, inspired me to go into politics, you know? But I think it's time for us to move forward. I do feel like this trial can only be a show trial, though. It, it just that must be the purpose of it. And in which case, they're deluded because the, the support for Aung San Suu Kyi is so strong. She's still mother suit to so many. And like you were saying earlier about being in the house arrest, it made her the people's hero. And surely this is all this is going to do. I feel like they've been very naive. Dictators don't make sense. They think that because they don't know how to negotiate, they just think violence is the only way. And they think this is going to take away Suji's popularity. But if anything, I think this is making her even more popular. And no, like Suji has a lot of flaws, but I personally will not believe corruption on Suji at all. Nobody does. Like, you know, nobody believes it. And like the way they're doing it, no one's going to like lose support for her and no one's going to believe you. Like, why are you even doing this? Dictators don't make sense. Dictators don't make sense at all. These dictators, they're also very wary of who they hang around with. And their circle is, so they only have like certain people. For example, I remember Nguyen had like his cook. His cook was one of his most trusted people, and his cook would feed him information, wrong information, Nguyen about the country, and he would trust him. And the other people he would trust would be like his daughter and everything. And I think it's the same thing with like, it doesn't have to be lawyer, it just has to be like in the circle. And like, I feel like someone, it might be wrong, but I feel like Mayan's trusted circle is feeding him information that is quite delusional as well. I mean, He's super delusional if he thought he was going to win the elections in 2020 as well. But I think that with the Rohingya genocide, because the military like did it, and I think he thought that with the genocide and with like the misinformation that he has been sending about Aung San Suu Kyi, that Aung San Suu Kyi's popularity has been going down these last few years. And he thought like, okay, now that Aung San Suu Kyi has a bad reputation among like, international observers and internationally, that it's the same locally. If anything, I think this put her popularity even up. So I think that he thought like internationally it was bad. So it's going to reflect locally as well. And that and nationally people are going to be not supporting Suji. But he was wrong because NLD even won more seats than 2015. No, I, I think he has miscalculated people for sure. I mean, maybe he was right in terms of the international community wouldn't have as much sympathy because she had fallen out of favor. I mean, if the Rohingya genocide hadn't happened, I wonder would the international reaction be so much different than the way it's been now, which is quite indifferent and really just statements and no action. I'm just saying, I think it would have to be. And I think even if he wasn't underestimating the support for her locally, because it, you know, everywhere those NLD like supporters, you couldn't escape the support for NLD when those elections were taking part. It was everywhere. You'd have to be, you know, walking around with a blindfold to, to not, not see that. I think the international thing is a really good point because the West had demonized her so much. But before that, she was so championed and she was so adored internationally. Had this happened with her not having that demonizing process, I think there would have been so much more international pressure to have got involved. Definitely. It's quite good because I think I read an article that was saying like Biden is, Biden doesn't have that connection to Aung San Suu Kyi anymore. 
because before she was this international human rights activist, pro-democracy activist, and now she's a controversial figure. And I think, like I said before, I think it's the West getting her wrong in the first place. She was never a human rights activist. She was always a politician. You just never listened to her. You just have this perception of her. So yeah, I think internationally, mainly thought like, this is going to work as well. There will be a lot of Burmese people and international people listening to this. Um, one thing I do want to say is to learn about ethnic history as well. There's a lot of ethnic minorities in our country and learn about like Chin people had three wars with the British as well. We don't know that. And like learn about the history because learning their history, because they learn our history. And it's only fair that we learn the history so we can understand each other. So I think if there's anyone listening to this, I hope that like we don't just fall back into Pama-centric politics and go federal democracy, you know, go for federal democracy. Yeah, that's it. Oh, also, I just want to say, like, both of you has been great in your activism towards Burma, you know? I'm not trying to, like, shit on Western people, but they're not that committed. They go, like, one issue one month, and then the next month, another issue. I'm really glad that you guys are sticking around. Like, I don't have, like, huge expectations on everyone, like, but you guys have been exceeding my expectations, and we're so, so grateful for that. I tend to have a very positive view of people, so, like, I, I think that, like, I don't really have a, a negative perception of Western people in Burma, funny enough. You know, many people do. I, I like most of them. It's just that one thing I just don't like is when Western people jump from issues. So I said, they talk about Hong Kong for one month and then the next day, like, all right, let's talk about Palestine. You know, let's be a little bit more committed, you know? Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast. Spelled a-H-N-A-H. Please like, follow and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.